From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Menopause, there is no escaping it. But there are ways to prepare for and successfully navigate this major life change. We usually have a class or some sort when we first start our periods. We usually get something when we get pregnant and have a baby. But nobody tells you what's going on when you're approaching perimenopause and menopause. We'll hear from the author of a new book titled Mayo Clinic, The Menopause Solution. Also on the program is... Is it true that if you swallow gum, it stays in your stomach for seven years? Debunking this and other chewing gum myths. And fit former smokers may be healthier than unfit people who've never smoked. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Clinically, menopause is defined as occurring one year after a woman's last menstrual period. It marks the end of menstrual cycles. Menopause can happen in your 40s or your 50s, but the average age is, this surprised me a little bit, I thought it was a little older, the average age in the U.S. is 51. But as any woman who has navigated this major life change knows, listen... (laughs) (laughs) Menopause is a whole lot more than the end of having periods. As you begin menopause, your body may seem to be acting in ways you're not used to. You might feel moody, stressed, and tired. Indeed, it may be like when you first got your period, when the physical and emotional feelings that you had were confusing, overwhelming, and maybe even embarrassing. Yeah, there is nothing easy about being a woman. I've learned that from being around (laughs) you. Well, whether you're approaching menopause right in the middle of it or having successfully gone through it, There is a new book coming out that offers help and guidance to women experiencing this life change. The book is titled Mayo Clinic, The Menopause Solution. Subtitles, A Doctor's Guide to Relieving Hot Flashes, Enjoying Better Sex, Sleeping Well, Controlling Your Weight, and Being Happy. And we're fortunate to have its medical editor, Dr. Stephanie Fabian, with us in the studio. Dr. Fabian is director of the Women's Health Clinic and the Office of Women's Health at Mayo Clinic. Stephanie Fabian, welcome back to the program. Good to have you here. Thank you so much, Tom and Tracy. I'm happy to be here. What a relief. The book is done. Oh, boy. Is it ever. It's been a, a work in progress for a long time, and I'm so happy to be here at this time to have it come out. I noticed that there are, you are the medical editor, you've got a, a, a layperson editor, but you've got a lot of contributors, so you've got a lot of experts who weighed in for this book. Absolutely. I have to acknowledge all my colleagues who put in their time and talents to make this book what it is, and colleagues from uh, both Rochester and Arizona contributed significantly, so many thanks to them. Let's start with what Dr. Shives said. He thought that uh, menopause was maybe later in your 50s, but the average age is 51. Is that about right? That is right. And actually, anything after the age of 45 is considered normal. And we know that about 95% of women have gone through menopause by 55, but the average age is 51. Um, Tell us why you wrote the book. I mean, I would assume that that there's a lot of information out there somewhere that women can access if if they want it. Um, but you have come up with a book to talk more about it, and there must be a reason for that. Why? 
Well, I work in a menopause clinic, and it was frustrating to me that there wasn't a really good source of information out there for women. Some of the information out there is inaccurate. Uh, some of it, some of it is just incredibly misleading. So we needed a good reference actually for our patients, and that's what drove it. But when you think about it, as women, we have good education. We we usually have a class or some sort of uh, education when we first start our periods. We usually get something when we get pregnant and have a baby, but nobody tells you what's going on when you're approaching perimenopause and menopause, and it takes many women by surprise, and there just isn't any uh, formalized education or, or a good source of information that we had, so that's why I did it. What are, I, just, I just have to say I have never been more excited for a Mayo Clinic publication than I have about this. So I'm in the perimenopause. When you equate it to being like when you first get your period, when you're a teenager or a preteen, it is exactly that feeling of this is a big deal. I don't know what is going on, and right. somebody help me. Oh my gosh, somebody help me. Yeah, you don't know what to expect, and and the symptoms that women can have are so highly variable and truly disturbing that um, we actually see women coming into the Mayo Clinic, um, not into the menopause clinic, but just into the clinic in general, wondering. What's wrong with them? And they think they have some horrible disease when actually what they're going through is actually the menopausal transition. Um, so you're right about that. It can be a scary process. What are some of the biggest misconceptions? I mean, you, you've worked in the menopause clinic for, for so long. What surprises you or what has surprised you that women talk about that uh, they, they don't understand about menopause? Well, what I usually explain to women is somebody changed the rules of your body and forgot to tell you. <laughs> so all of a sudden, women come in, and the rules have changed. I, I, I'm eating the same way I've always eaten. I've exercised as much as I usually exercise. I'm gaining weight. I'm putting weight on around my middle. Um, Another big misconception is that the hot flashes, we used to tell women that hot flashes lasted a year or two and then they went away. But what we know now, there's a lot of evidence out there that the average duration of hot flashes is seven to nine years. Really? And about 30% or more of women experience moderately severe hot flashes for 10 years or more. Oh, my gosh. So this is not a short duration. So when we're talking about solutions for women, it's not just a matter of grin and bear it and, you know, in the next few months it's all going to go away. It probably isn't going to go away in the next few months, and we need to come up with some longer-term solutions that are satisfactory. What, what do you really want our listeners to know about this book? I mean, you said that you wrote it because there really wasn't that much good information out there. What do you hope women will, will get out of this book? I hope they'll get some reassurance about what's going on with their bodies. I think knowledge is power. And so when you figure out what's really going on with your body, um, what to expect, uh, and if you do have some bothersome symptoms, you've got a list of strategies that you can use to take care of these symptoms. And then think about it. This is like the third act for us as women. We spend a third of our lives or more in menopause, and it's at that time that we really need to start looking out for our health. And this is a time when women start developing chronic diseases, and we can talk more about prevention then. So it's also just sort of a marker in time where we can start paying attention to our health in a, in a better way. And that's physical, emotional, spiritual health, that's all of it. It's not its not just one piece. Let's talk about those symptoms. Like you said, a woman can come in thinking that she's dying. I mean, the symptoms are far-flung. 
The classic symptoms are hot flashes and night sweats, but we are trying to educate um, both women and their doctors now that the symptoms of menopause are so much more than just hot flashes and night sweats. And yes, we can talk about those. So it's feeling hot and flushed and getting sweaty and it's very inconvenient and it can happen in the middle of a board meeting and it's just awful. And then you're doing the same thing all night long and you're not getting any sleep. Um, but it's also mood changes. It's irritability. I have women coming in saying they're biting their children's heads off and they don't understand why and their moods are just all over the place. Um, there are diff- women complain of brain fog, so trouble with memory and concentration. Um, but there are also other things like women describe joint aches, and who knew that would be a menopausal symptom? But we're actually seeing that that's one of the more common menopausal symptoms is joint aching. So um, there are many, many, many symptoms that, that accompany menopause. All the symptoms that you talk about, are these basically all related to hormonal changes? Can all the, the symptoms of menopause that, that you talk about here and in this book, are they all related to hormones? Most of them are, although it, I have to say it is difficult to tease apart hormonal changes from the aging process because it's all happening at the same time. Um, so what we're discussing in here is primarily the, the hormone deficiency symptoms, but some of it is a little murky with what is age-related and what is hormone-related. So you're right to ask that question. All right, Dr. Stephanie Fabian, she is the medical editor of the new book called Mayo Clinic, The Menopause Solution. When we come back, we'll be talking with Dr. Fabian a little bit about treatment of menopausal symptoms. Myth or matter of fact, too. i got to throw that in there. Having sex after menopause is rare. It's unusual for a woman to be sexually active in her midlife years and beyond. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking about menopause with Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Dr. Fabian is the medical editor of the new book titled Mayo Clinic, subtitled A Doctor's Guide to Relieving Hot Flashes, Enjoying Better Sex, Sleeping Well, Controlling Your Weight, and Being Happy. Ooh, what well, woman wouldn't want all of those things? <laughs> yeah, it's tough to be a woman. <laughs> so myth or matter of fact, we'll go with from the title of the book there, Having Sex After Menopause is Rare. It's Unusual for a Woman to Be sexually active in her midlife years and beyond. Myth or fact? That is just a myth, (laughs) I'm happy to say. So uh, the fact is that women and men uh, remain sexual until they die. So uh, women are still sexual. There are, however, some changes in sexual functioning as we go through the menopausal transition. And typically women go from a more spontaneous sex drive to a more right time, right situation, right place. Mm. Yeah. And the guy just has to figure that all <laughs> yeah. out, and then it's good. So we call that more of a responsive or willingness sex drive. So um, there are some changes there, and those do seem to happen to a lot of women around this time. Before we took that break, we were talking about some of the different symptoms that go along with menopause, and one of the ones that you mentioned was sleep. So sleep can be affected. I do have some friends that are saying that, that they are having trouble sleeping now. Well, and that can be one of the first signs of menopause, actually, is just I can't go to sleep and I don't know why. Not necessarily having night sweats, but just can't get to sleep, so insomnia. Um, but also there are sleep disorders um, after menopause that are much more common in women um, following the menopausal transition. And in fact, we're kind of in the same pile as the men in terms of the frequency of sleep disorders after menopause. And those include obstructive sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome, in addition to just can't get to sleep. And 
I have to throw in there, what about the emotional parts? That's exactly right. So we know that um, mood disorders are problematic during the menopausal transition. And I just explained to women that it's a time of increased vulnerability in terms of mood. So in other words, um, women who have had a mood problem in the past, for instance, they might have had baby blues after having a child, Mm. are much more likely to have a mood problem around menopause. Or women who have had PMS symptoms and mood symptoms with their menstrual cycles, those are hormonally related mood problems. And so these women are much more likely to have a problem at menopause. But even women who have never had a mood problem, it's it's a little more likely to have those symptoms of anxiety and irritability right around that menopausal transition. And sometimes they're mild and they go away on their own, but sometimes they're a little more serious and they might require some treatment. You stack those things all on top of each other and it's almost like the body snatchers. I mean, you really (laughs) do feel like it's a, who am I? Well, you also have to remember what's going on in, in women's lives during that time. So it's also a time of a lot of transition. Kids are often going off to school. Um, There might be some relationship issues. Women are often taking care of aging parents at the same time. So there are many, many things that are going on with a woman's life during that time. Let's talk a little bit about treatment because it used to be, and it seems like the last time uh, we talked or one of your colleagues uh, talked to us about uh, menopause and and the symptoms, that for some women who had severe uh, night sweats, uh, hot flashes, etc., severe symptoms of menopause, that the, that the best treatment was low-dose hormone replacement therapy. Uh, we don't call it that anymore, do we? But is, is that still true? Do you still use that? I mean, we're, we're talking about the symptoms here, and then when these women come to your clinic, you, you say, well, you know, that's normal. It's menopausal. Here's what we do. W- what do you talk about for what treatment? What do we tell them? So when uh, hormone therapy is the most effective treatment for menopausal symptoms, meaning hot flashes, night sweats, but also those other bothersome symptoms that can't sleep, the brain fog, etc. So we know that hormone therapy is the most effective therapy. Not every woman is a great candidate for hormone therapy, but the majority of women who are in their 50s and within 10 years of that menopausal transition, are the benefits usually outweigh the risks for hormone therapy. And yes, you're right. We use low-dose um, often transdermal through the skin, um, estrogen therapy as our so primary. A patch. As, as a patch. Right. There, there are also gels and sprays and other forms, but the patch is probably one of the most common forms that we use. And, and that seems to work well for a lot of women. And again, some women are just not candidates for that, but the majority of women, the benefits uh, are outweigh the risks for younger women. And the risks are? Um, the risks of hormone therapy in general um, If a woman has a uterus, and this is where it gets a little complicated, if a woman still has a uterus, she has to use a progestogen to protect the uterine lining from growing too much with the estrogen alone. So we have to use that combination of hormone therapy. And if a woman uh, takes hormone therapy for more than about five years, the risk of breast cancer increases slightly. Now, this is derived from a study that came out, um, the Women's Health Initiative in 2002, and they used a different kind of hormone therapy than we use now. So the risks may be a little bit different uh, than than what that trial told us. But what we advise women is the risk of breast cancer with combination hormone therapy, estrogen plus progestogen, is slightly increased after about five years of use. So that's the main thing that most women are concerned about. Sure. Is there a blood test, a, a marker in the blood that says, oh, yes, she is starting her her menopause transition? 
Well, there are some blood tests that can be used, and one of them is called an FSH level. However, honestly, we don't use it that much, and the reason is that women, all women, go through menopause, and it's usually around the same time. We would use testing like that more for women that we weren't really expecting to be menopausal. Uh, so, for instance, women who are younger than the age of 45 years and, and we're starting to skip some periods, we might use that testing. But for the majority of women, blood testing is not required to diagnose menopause. Are there any um, home remedies that uh, you recommend to your patients? We've talked about hormone therapy, which is a prescription medication. But there are other things women can do to help with, with hot flashes, et cetera? Absolutely. Um, vacation. Yeah, vacation is great. <laughs> Jewelry are, also works pretty well. Um, no, lifestyle changes are the things that uh, we would suggest first. And so those are paying attention to the things that you already know about, like make sure you have a consistent sleep time. Make sure your diet is appropriate. We know that um, caffeine and alcohol and tobacco can probably exacerbate hot flashes. So those triggers can be avoided. Not that you can't have your morning cup of coffee. Um, but knowing that your hot flashes might get a little bit worse after that. Maintaining your weight where it should be, exercising on a regular basis, all of these things can help a little bit, but I don't want women to think that that's the only thing out there because often, frankly, that's just not enough. And when we uh, were getting started, you had said uh, when a woman is going through menopause, she's at risk for some other diseases. Explain that a little bit. Well, it's not that menopause is a disease. It's not. It's a natural process, and it's not that menopause causes diseases. It doesn't. But as we age, we're at risk for diseases, and after menopause, women are more at risk for heart disease and osteoporosis and some other things. And so it's important for women to get all their appropriate screening and to pay a little bit more attention to uh, cardiovascular risk factors like um, stopping smoking if they're smoking, watching their weight, paying attention to blood pressure and cholesterol cholesterol and blood sugar. All of those things are, are more important as we get older and certainly after menopause. Dr. Stephanie Fabian is director of the Women's Health Clinic, and she is also medical editor of the new book called Mayo Clinic, The Menopause Solution. And I like all these subtitles. A doctor's guide to relieving hot flashes, enjoying better sex, sleeping well, controlling your weight, and being happy. Dr. Fabian, is the book available now? It is available April 26th. All right. Amazon.com or Absolutely. at your favorite bookstore? Every Or you can go online, mayoclinic.org. Dr. Fabian, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, can swallowing chewing gum make you sick? Does it actually stay in your stomach for seven years? We'll find out. And a new study finds that fit former smokers are actually healthier than unfit people who never smoked. We'll have details from Mayo Clinic researchers. If you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Hello to all our listeners in St. Joseph, Missouri, who hear Mayo Clinic Radio on KFEQ AM. And to our listeners in WZUS-FM in Decatur, Illinois. These are just two of the more than 70 stations that broadcast our program nationwide. Thanks for listening. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 100 million Americans have high cholesterol. Statins are medications that lower cholesterol levels, but who should take them? A new study in the New England Journal of Medicine found statins can lower your risk of heart attack or stroke, even if you don't have cardiovascular disease. They gave patients a statin to lower their cholesterol, resuvastatin, and they based it on their risk for heart attack over the next 10 years. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says the study assessed risk in a new way. We normally have things like blood pressure, we have things like diabetes, smoking. The study also looked at waist-to-hip ratio, family history, slightly elevated blood sugars, and mild kidney dysfunction. Study participants were required to have a 10% risk of having a heart attack in 10 years, even though that risk doesn't seem very high. The statin significantly lowered their risk of needing a, a, a bypass, and a stent, having a stroke, having a heart attack, or dying over five years. Dr. Kopetsky says lifestyle changes such as moving more and eating right are key to lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease, even if you do take a statin. And in other news, a team of Mayo Clinic researchers has discovered that aspirin use is associated with a reduced risk of developing bile duct cancer, also called cholangiocarcinoma. Researchers say their study found that individuals who took aspirin had a more than two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half-fold lesser chance of developing bile duct cancer compared to individuals who did not take aspirin. Bile duct cancer is an uncommon cancer that forms in the tubes that carry digestive fluid through the liver. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you remember when you were young and your mom probably told you not to do it, but maybe you did it anyway? That happened all the time. That's right. No matter what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you you did it just to see what would happen. After chewing a wad of gum, instead of getting rid of it in the wastebasket or like Dr. Shives would do (laughs) under the desktop, (laughs) you would swallow it. Maybe you were someplace public and there wasn't a good place to toss it. Whatever. Maybe you couldn't resist seeing what would happen if you swallowed your gum. <laughs> so the question is, can you do yourself serious harm by swallowing gum? Well, here with the definitive answer to that question is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Mark Larson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Larson. Hi, Dr. Shives. Hi, Tracy. You know what? Here's the deal. Tom and I, we know we have a whole team that we meet. What should we do for topics? What should we talk about? And Dr. Shives said, I think it's interesting. What happens to gum when you swallow it? And you know what? He's right. Well, this is a, it's a great topic because there are so many myths associated with chewing gum and swallowing gum. Some of the most creative myths have been that if you swallow gum, it'll stay in your stomach for seven, seven years, years or longer. <laughs> And there's no basis for that. So your mother probably gave you some scary story, thinking that she could scare you into not swallowing your gum. But I like that it's seven years. You and I both, yeah. both of our moms said that. What about your mom, Dr. Shives? I don't uh, remember if she even said anything about it. She said she assumed that I was smart enough not to swallow. Our it parents were clever, and they couldn't tell us strict GI tract rationale. They had to give us some kind of myth. So we told us not to swallow watermelon seeds, or we'd sprout a watermelon plant. <laughs> Somewhere within our GI tract. That's not true either. But but chewing gum is interesting. 
if you think of where chewing gum came from, it comes from trees or plants or grasses. It's been around for maybe a 100,000 years. People have been looking at saps from trees and finding, for some reason, the resin from the trees enjoyable to chew. Sometimes it has flavor like wintergreen or peppermint from the tree sap, and they found that enjoyable. And so for a long, long time, people have been chewing types of resins and things. Well, that's what gum is? is that's what gum is. It's a, it's a tree sap originally from a tree called the sapodilla, which was thought to be one of the original kind of trees where people started to harvest it for the strict purpose of making a gum product. Hmm. But then in the 1800s, fancy scientists came up with the idea that we can't tap all these trees, so maybe we could make it synthetically. So organic chemists came up with the idea that you could make a rubber, synthetic rubber, that somehow had a moldable, enjoyable characteristic. Once it got into the temperature of your mouth, it was soft and chewy and for some reason thought to be enjoyable. Then they started averaging flavoring, you know, cinnamon from natural products or artificial sugars, and suddenly chewing gum was launched. Wow. So it's and been around for a long time. Mr. Wrigley might have had something to do with that. Weren't they one of the originals? He was one of the originals. That's exactly right. Chickley, which is one of the tree saps, is actually was one of the first commercial gum products. So Chickley, you've heard of chiclets, those mm-hmm. things when you were a kid, you had a packet it was of my grandma's them. grandma's gum. Your yep. favorite gum. Mm-hmm. That probably came, derived its name from the Chickley sap that came from a tree resin. But the truth to answer your question about the GI tract, the GI tract is, as we like to say, amazing. It can handle fats and carbohydrates and proteins and almost anything you can throw at it except for things like chewing gum. (laughs) So the synthetic rubber which is now where chewing gum is made from, it's almost made from something that's identical to what an inner tube tire is like. So if you think of what you tell your children, you are chewing something similar to an inner tube tire. I'll tell them that. The GI tract cannot break that down. So we can break down lots of compounds, but we can't break down that synthetic rubber. So it really does stay in there for seven years? Uh, No, it doesn't stay in there for seven years, but it goes through mostly undigested. So think of a small piece of gum. It will travel through your GI tract probably in the typical time three or four days, and you can kind of gauge that with other undigestible products. For example, sweet corn. We all kind of have a rough transit time estimate of our GI tract based on undigestible products like sweet corn. And chewing gum does the same thing. So if you had a small piece of chewing gum, it should pass from your GI tract in two to four days typically. And most of the time it wouldn't cause any harm and would pass uneventfully through your GI tract. But But. why did your mother tell you not to swallow? And the answer is some kids might have five or ten or more pieces of chewing gum. (laughs) And along the way... They might pick up some other debris. So maybe there's some other food material or some hair or something else that wandered into GI, your GI tract. It might collect with the gum material and start to form a larger and larger and larger particle. And that particle can be called a bezoar, which is the fancy medical name for just a collection of crud, if you will, that can possibly block the stomach or block the small intestine. So a single piece of chewing gum probably not going to cause any harm. But in a small child, for example, if you have multiple pieces of gum and they're gathering other pieces of debris as they travel through the GI tract, they might become a larger and larger particle. And they could potentially could cause an obstruction. And there have been medical reports of young children who have had obstructions of their small intestine or even their colon from wads of chewing gum that weren't digested, 
pushed and mashed together and, and caused a blockage. So it makes it through the stomach. It's when it gets to the colon or the intestine that that's when it can cause problems. That, that's typically the, mm-hmm. the, the story. The small intestine, is, the caliber is only about an inch or an inch and a half in diameter. So it's much smaller. So if a child were to have a number of pieces of gum and they collect together, you certainly could have a collection that could cause an obstruction. Um, do, can you get that out with a scope usually, or do they have to have an open operation to get it? Typically, the, the, the severe episodes have usually required an open operation because they're usually far, far down in the small intestine. For example, where the small intestine joins up with the colon, the ileocecal valve region is quite snug. And, and that so would, that's between the large bowel and the small bowel. Exactly, exactly. And that would typically require, if it's a large obstru- area that's obstructed, would cause a, require an operation. Well, I can sort of understand why your digestive system uh, can't handle a piece of rubber, but why can't it handle corn? <laughs> well, that's it's a great question. Most land mammals can handle vegetables and products that we eat every day without much trouble. But if you look at what we can digest versus what other mammals can digest better than we can, for example, cows digest grasses and grains and corn to a greater degree than we do. We have a limited number of enzymes. And they've got four stomachs. (laughs) They've got more (laughs) stomachs, Tracy, that's right. And they have a different complement of enzymes that help them digest products more completely than we do. So, for example, many humans have trouble with milk products. We don't have, many of us don't have a lactase enzyme as we get into adulthood that allows us to digest milk very well. And the same thing is true with grasses or some of the, the material that's in the shell of a sweet corn material. So we, as we grow older, our enzymes change a bit, but we're not quite as sophisticated as some of the other land mammals that we inhabit this planet with. So the uh, bottom line is it's probably okay to swallow a piece of gum, that it's going to pass through di- your digestive tract, but it might get stuck someplace, especially if you're a child and you got a big wad of it. That's exactly right. Grandma, where is right? So I was going to say. What Dr. Shives just said is right on. It probably wouldn't cause any harm. So if your child were to sm- swallow a small piece of gum, you probably don't have to race off to the emergency room worried about they're having a, a problem that's going to occur from that. But the best advice is don't swallow lots of gum, especially consecutively, or something could happen like a, a bowel obstruction. All right, gastroenterologist Dr. Mark Larson, thanks so much for filling us in. Thanks Great for having story. me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, do former smokers who maintain a certain level of fitness have better health outcomes than smokers who are less fit? The answer may surprise you. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's no secret, Tracy, that if you're a smoker, quitting will almost certainly reduce your risk for a host of serious illnesses, things like cancer and heart disease. But if you have quit, you also know that it isn't necessarily smooth sailing after you've crushed out your last cigarette. You've spoken like a true ex-smoker. <laughs> Is that right? Well, the cravings do go away okay, after good. about a decade. Aside from occasional <laughs> urges to light up again after a decade or so, you may have been plagued by a number of unwanted consequences, including weight gain. And that weight gain, in turn, may have led to new health risks, things like diabetes and high blood pressure. That left you wondering whether it was worth quitting smoking in the first place. <laughs> true. Well... Turns out the good news is you can reduce your risk of disease after quitting smoking by being fit. No smokes and aerobics. 
That's the finding of a new study done by researchers at Mayo Clinic and elsewhere that showed that fit former smokers had lower risk for a number of diseases that did former smokers who were not fit. Here to talk about the findings are two of the investigators. Dr. Thomas Allison is director of the Stress Testing Center and the Sports Cardiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Also joining us is Dr. Nora Shido. Dr. Shido is a Ph.D. fellow at the Semmelweis University in Budapest, Hungary. She's also a research collaborator at Mayo Clinic, where her interests are sports cardiology and exercise testing. Welcome, both of you, to the program. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Nora Shido, you're the first person we've ever had from Hungary on the program. (laughs) Tell us how you uh, got uh, hooked up with the Mayo Clinic and are now collaborating in some research here with Dr. Allison. So Dr. Allison has some family relatives in Hungary, and uh, he had an excellent presentation in my clinic uh, three years ago. And uh, then... uh, I wanted to come to the Mayo Clinic to learn how to do the exercise testing. So you have relatives in Hungary? Um, a couple. I have, I have uh, 80 cousins in Hungary. 80? <laughs> yes. When, <laughs> I, when I say cousin, that, that's, <laughs> that's not... That's a loose that's, term. Yeah. That's a loose term. Second, third, once removed, twice removed. But yes, my, my grandmother and, and grandfather both came from Hungary in 1907 through Ellis Island, and um, that's on my mother's side, so Allison isn't a Hungarian name, but the uh, grandmother's family um, is all intact, and we know everybody, and so I go over there, and there's 80 cousins. And you might be distant relatives. <laughs> that's, that, that's possible. Yeah, everybody that's possible. in Hungary. But, but they invited me to give a talk at, at Semmelweis on sports cardiology, and The next thing I know, the professor is uh, saying, can you take a student? And then I have Nora. So it's been an excellent collaboration. We've... We've published some good papers and, and many presentations. A win-win situation, exactly. it looks like. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes sense that if quitting smoking is healthy for you, quitting smoking and being athletic is even better for you. Yes, it's worse to quit smoking, especially if you start to exercise. Uh, because then your rates of obesity, hypertension, and diabetes, and the mortality li- risk uh, could actually be lower compared to never smokers. So is it fair to say that uh, a lot of the problems, the health problems that former smokers have, are related to the weight they gain? Exactly. You know, And a lot of people use that as an excuse to keep smoking. Um, but but as Nora will tell us in a minute, your your risk, your survival is much better if you quit. But yes, you can gain weight. The typical past smoker gains weight and gets a risk of diabetes and hypertension. But with exercise and improving cardiorespiratory fitness, you don't get those problems. In fact, you do better than the overall pool of never smokers. How long did it take you to figure this out, Dr. Shido, and how did you do it? So around a half a year. So you've been here for six months doing research or back and forth? Yes, so this is my fifth visit at Mayo. (laughs) Long (laughs) trip. Yes, and last year I was here for four months, and uh, 
and uh, we found out this topic at that time. Does every person who quits smoking gain weight? I mean, is that just part, they go hand in hand? Well, I think the, the average weight gain is about eight pounds. But, of course, there's a distribution of that. And, um, and, and for some people, the weight gain is considerably more, enough to push them into high blood pressure uh, and diabetes. And, of course, we have a database from the stress testing lab, which we analyze, and that's where we get, where we get these results. But um, those individuals who can exercise well um, are fit. They don't get the weight gain. They don't get the diabetes and hypertension. Um, and, and as I say, they do, they do quite well. So you tested uh, former smokers, those who uh, pursued a, an aerobic exercise program and those who did not. And, and tell us what the difference was you found exactly. Well, again, we, we found about half the rates of these comorbidities in the fit individuals. So comorbidities, you mean uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, diabetes and obesity. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. Um, and uh, we also found that their mortality experience, in other words, their survival, was better than the general pool of people that never smoked. Whereas as a whole, past smokers have a very slightly increased risk. It is true that when you quit smoking, your your risk of dying goes down considerably, so it's uh, the risk is 1.2. So it's about 20 percent higher for a past smoker than an ever smoker, but for a continued smoker, it's 2.4. So it's 140 percent higher. So the continued smoker has more than double the risk of the never smoker. The past smoker just a tiny little risk. Which exercise will wash away. Unbelievable, isn't it? Were you surprised by these findings, Dr. Shido? Yes, we were. And what does it take to be fit? I mean, when you're talking about a former smoker being fit, how do you know they're fit, and, and what would a former smoker have to do to become fit? Get your pencil ready. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> so, so, so we know they're fit because we're measuring their cardiorespiratory fitness on the stress test. Okay, so okay. You, you put we're them on We're not guessing. We're, we're, we're measuring it. And they need to do a minimum of 75 minutes a week of high-intensity exercise like jogging or running or at least 150 minutes a week of moderate-intensity exercise like brisk walking. And if and you said if you do that as a former smoker, your overall health outlook is better than someone who has never smoked and doesn't exercise? Is that what you said? Better than someone yeah. who wow. has never, never smoked sm and mm -hmm. doesn't exercise. Wow. Now, of course, if you never smoked... And you exercise. That's the double benefit. Mm -hmm. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, it, it's just great to know as a former smoker that you can reduce your risk for uh, a disease down to a level of someone who has never smoked and even better than that if you're fit. That's right. And, you know, when, when you come down to it, there are three things that people can do for their cardiovascular health. And I think really kind of their general health. All right, listen up. Three things. <laughs> Number one, I, we talked about exercise. Number two, eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. And number three, don't smoke. All right, there you go. It's that easy. 
Piece that, of cake. That easy. It's not a piece of cake. It's maybe a, you know, a Piece salad. of kale. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Piece of kale. <laughs> Dr. Shido and Dr. Allison, thanks so much for being with us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.